Hello and welcome to Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, Just Jonda, and today we are doing one of our Just Jonda LBDs. These are our special episodes, Just Jonda Legal Breakdown. And tonight, our legal breakdown for is our ongoing coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial. And this is part two of our coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial. And tonight I am going to focus specifically on the opening and some of the initial witness statements. Now, the last time we talked, I talked a lot about jury selection. So the jury was in, there was no continuance, which I also mentioned that if there was, you guys would have known well in advance why, and we talked about that, but uh, Judge Cahill wants to keep this thing going and, and good for him. It's Right now, It's uh, I'm pretty impressed with how things are being run, even with the extra that needs to happen because of COVID and, and all of the extra precautions. It's um, the, the upside is that... Um, Everybody has been operating under these precautions for so long that by the time they got to a trial of this magnitude that's going to go on for several weeks and all kinds of extra cameras in the courtroom and increased scrutiny, at least they were able to have all of these extra precautions down pat. I mean, anything to get away from any possibility of things, at least even if just on the administrative end from running smoothly, you want to do, especially when the eyes of the world are upon you, no matter what side people are on. So again, tonight, just the opening and the opening statements of both sides and um, a few of the witnesses, some definitely uh, some of the earlier witnesses. I still need to uh, get a little bit more in depth with the witnesses from this afternoon. So the main two that I'm going to focus on are going to be, well, sort of three, but the dispatcher briefly, Donald Williams and um, and Dee Frazier. I won't use her first name. They didn't show her face, so I won't use her first name. So let's start with the opening. I must say that the opening by Prosecutor Blackwell was textbook and I loved it. And I don't say that to say, oh, he's so much better because of this or that. No, I mean textbook as in this is what you learn about doing an opening. Your opening, whether you are the prosecution or the defense should be the roadmap to your case. That's why you see in the about section, I call it the roadmap. You should show or be able to show the jury or at least be able to tell them, this is what I plan to show you in this case. Now, some may even go a little bit, a, a couple of steps further and say, this is what I am going to show you in this case. And along the way, these are the 
the pieces of the puzzle that I am going to provide to you in order to prove this point. So if our first rest stop is Denny's, then I am going to not only show you the Denny's, but I'm going to show you why that Denny's is there and why it is an, an important part of the overall trip that I am taking you on. So he, he did a fantastic job at that. It was very easy to follow. And he just basically told you, this is what you'll see. This is what you'll hear and all of that. So first, let's, let me tell you a little bit about um, Prosecutor Blackwell, because I, I thought it was rather interesting. Prosecutor Blackwell is not an actual member of the prosecutor's office there in Minneapolis. He is actually assisting the prosecutors pro bono as a special prosecutor for this case. He's the founding partner and CEO and chairman of Blackwell Burke PA, which is his firm, obviously. And he's a founder of the Minnesota Association of Black Lawyers, which I think is great. But when I look at Mr. Blackwell, he's only but so old. So that tells me that they didn't have an association of Black lawyers until, well, not too long ago. It's not like Mr. Blackwell's 107, but okay, that's just a side note to me. So as I said, um, he definitely, I even wrote in my notes, he definitely sticks to the textbook jury roadmap technique. And you know what? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm sitting here. Tell me what it is that you're going to tell me. Hi, PGC, uh, PBG. Nice to see you in the room. And for those of you who are, who are going to listen to this, uh, listen back to this tomorrow, the next day, the next day after that, this is a... Um, excuse me, this is a live recording. So um, PBG, I'm just starting, so you haven't missed much. So what, it, as I was going to say, if I'm sitting on a jury, I would want to know, okay, where are we going with this? What do you want? What do you want to know? So this is great. So as I said, he stuck to the, he stuck to the textbook. He explained what they were going to show, what they were going to do and what each thing meant, which is great. He gave each topic briefly, but in a way that got the jury at least somewhat acquainted with the terms that are going to come up a lot. He also made it clear that we are going to be downright painstakingly thorough in the analysis of the nine minute, 29 second video that takes us through every aspect of the actions of the officers um, with George Floyd. And, and we're gonna go through that whole thing. So once, uh, and, and of course, every second right through to the death. So that nine minutes and 29 seconds, what a masterful use of the video and just reminding people of that time said you will hear i can't breathe you will see his respiration get as he called it shallower and shallower of course you know me in language i would have said more shallow but okay um he also said 
is that what we will see is that there are seconds, even minutes, where George Floyd never moved again other than some involuntary movement. He even talked about testimony he's going to put on regarding the involuntary movement, which made it clear that he is right out the gate going to be um, dealing with the, which I thought was, again, very smart, setting the jury up for the fact that they are going to deal with and hear testimony about about the notion that George Floyd did not die. And I'm sorry for the clicking, guys. Uh, as I mentioned on the last recording, I am um, following along with uh, some notes. I always just do a basic outline so that I don't forget anything. Everything else is off the dome, but I don't want to forget anything in something like this important. That's this important. So that's the clicking that you hear. I apologize for that. Um, because my phone died and I should have made sure my phone didn't die so that you guys wouldn't hear the clicking. Okay. So at any rate, back to, and I, and I also had to send it to some folks that I'm on the air. So once he, um, okay, so that's, oh, okay. I'm sorry. So that is why he is giving us the information about the voluntary movement because he knows that we're going to have to deal with that. He says, you're going to hear testimony about anoxic seizure, the body's automatic reflex when breathing and when breathing is stopped due to oxygen deprivation. Again, these things all play into the fact that he knows that the defense is going to say that if he was moving, he was alive that if his body was jerking, he was alive. And again, that he did not die as a result of Chauvin's actions, which is, you know, the heart of pleading not guilty. So it's going to be very important that these, uh, for him to start both sides, actually, but I'm, I'm just dealing with the prosecution right now, both sides to begin to prepare the jury for the fact that there is going to be a portion of this case and you're preparing the court as well that is really going to to start being um a battle of the experts as it relates to hi boney a battle of the experts as it relates to the um as it relates to the actual cause of death and even more specifically than that, exactly what time, what it means when you die, what your body actually does, what parts of that are involuntary. Essentially, we are going to get up close and personal in this case with what it means in terms of your body and your bodily functions when you're alive and when you're dead, and also the interaction potentially of drugs, the amount of drugs, the tolerance of drugs. So 
unlike for those of us who lived through the OJ case, we saw the dueling experts as it relates to DNA. We don't need that here because there is no question as to who the actors were. So we're not trying to prove who was there and who wasn't. That's what made DNA so important in the OJ case because they had a person on trial that was not physically caught red-handed on at the scene of the crime. So obviously, if you're saying that he did this very up close and personal crime, then you kind of need to try to prove he was there. And of course, as you know, there were lots of alleged pieces to the puzzle as it relates to that blood droplets, etc., to prove that he was actually there because those things belong to him, the glove and all of that. So that is why that was so important on this in that case. So if you're any of my old school court TV folks from the OJ trial and several others um, that have gone on over the years, you you don't have that exhausting piece of explaining strains of DNA and all of that. Now, on the flip side, while the stuff that the medical experts are going to talk about here are probably a little more interesting than, you know, the the rings on your DNA ladders, on the flip side, you got to kind of wonder, do I want to listen to the dull DNA ladder conversation or do I want to get a crash course on this is what happens when you die? So it's, 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 a, it's, it's a tough one. So it'll be, it's interesting and it'll be interesting to see how folks feel um, about that. So next now, he starts to get a little bit deeper into all of this and talk about Chauvin himself. Chauvin himself talks about what happens or what didn't happen when Derek Chauvin, and we're going to call him the defendant because I screw up his name so much. It's Chauvin, 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 the defendant. What happened when the defendant was told more than once that um, George Floyd had no pulse. We'll get into the issues with, between him and the crowd a little bit later. You get a better sense of that through some of the witness testimony. And I'm sure when it's, if he testifies or anybody who testifies on his behalf, I can't imagine he would testify. He probably shouldn't. Um, and the fact that even after the ambulance arrives, he never moves, which is corroborated by several, several witnesses that he did not move, no matter what, um, no matter what other individuals said, he didn't move. And that is definitely quite problematic in all of this. We are going, he also told them that they're going to hear about the fact that even when the paramedics come, the paramedics check for his pulse. He's 
still does not move. And I said his pulse as in George Floyd. Chauvin still does not move, according to witnesses, even after being told that there was no pulse, even after the ambulance arrived and brought the bed over, this man did not move until he was physically removed from him by the paramedics. You also will see that, and I'm, I'm speaking as if I'm Mr. Blackwell, that there are bystanders asking him to move. What I thought was most disturbing, and this is, and I'm someone who has done more than one episode on this case, was even more disturbing is that there's four minutes and 44 seconds where at the very least, George Floyd was passed out or unconscious, if not knocking on death's door for four minutes and 44 seconds. And he didn't move. And of course, he talks about the fact that they do have individuals who are involved in some way with police and law enforcement who told them to move. Who told them to move. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, involved with police and law enforcement. And they're going to testify that the force should have ended as soon as they put George Floyd on the ground. You're going to hear from a policy person, uh, the person who did the course, uh, the course principle, um, that one of their core principles is in your custody is in your care, which means it's not just about having the person in your custody. It's about taking care of who is in your custody. And in this particular case, he didn't. Now, of course, we know that there are some officers who take this a bit too far, like the officers in the Dylan Ruth case who felt like maybe they should go ahead and take him to Burger King. Well, that might be a bit much, but <laughs> I guess that's a personal thing for me. But if you have someone and you arrest them, that's not all you do. As they said, in your custody is in your care. Now, he goes further and and reminds them that no help were no help was administered. So again, what happened to that? There was a woman who was a Minneapolis uh, firefighter first responder on the scene, and I know we heard this person on video saying that a number of times, and she wanted to at least be allowed to take his pulse. And that simply didn't happen. What was this all about? It was all about a fake $20 bill. The interesting thing is there's no clarity as to whether George Floyd even knew it was fake. But the conduct when they came on the scene was as if 
they were coming to take down King Kong. But later on, once I finished the, well, no, I'm going to say it now because I think that it, it bears saying. This is a side note um, from the opening. I think one of the things that was interesting in that came out in this, at least to me, is what was said on the call. And this uh, came from the dispatcher um, whose testimony really was more about procedure, but there was a piece that I thought was key in all of this. And that was the 911 call to her. The person told her that someone passed a counterfeit 20. But then in their description, they gave what I found to be a description that we have come to know is almost like a Karen type description. The type of description that you give when you know that the police are going to probably come guns blazing because that's the experience when there are certain types of descriptions given. This person said he passed the money. Uh, here is one that's going to be a trigger, certainly on the police end. He was probably high or drunk. He was under the influence in some way. Okay, you know, whatever. He was about 6'6". Six, six. That's what the store clerk said. Uh, I'm sure she, uh, the store clerk said he was black. And about 230 pounds. Now, you have just described someone whose offense you're calling in is passing a $20 bill, but for the purposes of what happens when it comes, when it comes to conscious and unconscious bias in this country, particularly with Black men's, um, their interaction with police for all intents and purposes you just told the police dispatcher that king kong came and robbed your store okay and i looks like i have a special guest that is calling in i'm trying to get him on and he is an attorney friend as well named lossie uh, are you there? Let me put on my, I may have to put my headphones on to make sure I got you, but um, you have to connect. Okay. Uh -oh. live. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. So I'm talking about the opening in the George Floyd case. And Lassie is an attorney colleague who is licensed. You're in Maryland, right? I live in Maryland, but I'm D.C. Part. Okay, yeah, so he's licensed in D.C. So I am going over the opening in the George Floyd case. So unless you're talking, if you could do mute just so that I don't hear the feedback going on. Right. Okay. Uh, how do you yeah. do that? I don't know your phone. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. I'll try to figure it out. But I'll, I'll let me hang up and let you continue. Okay. All right. And then um, I'll tell you when to call in. All right. Cool. All right. Okay. We're going to disconnect. 
he's got a new baby. So lots going on there, but stay tuned. And also if you can't come on in a room where there isn't any noise, just uh, type in the chat and I'll tell everybody what you're saying. So we, I already talked about the fact that we're going to have dual pathology findings and, and things get a little interesting there. I appreciate the fact that the prosecutor already told us that things are going to get a little hinky there. Hi, Becca. I've finished talking about the Real Housewives, but now I'm talking about um, the Derek Chauvin uh, trial part two. So interesting stuff going on here as well. So he also, uh, as I mentioned, he talked about the, the fact that the pathology is going to get a little weird. We have two medical pathologists. The one who's the current pathologist and the one who trained that pathologist. They do agree that George Floyd died at the hands of another, which is homicide. But the next part, which is how that happened, is where things get a little weird. Because the current medical, uh, medical pathologist says that the cause of death, death was fatal arrhythmia. Well, that kills everybody. Your heart stops, which means death. So the cause of death is death, which complicated the ability of the officers to restrain it. Now, where they do that at? Your death made it hard for me to do my job. Okay. So that's where he leaves it. Next, we have the defense. The defense is a Mr. Eric Nelson. And by the way, that opening was probably about two and a half to three hours, but it, it, it went very well. You wouldn't even have known it because he didn't um, beat up one, one point and then just go on and on and on. There, because there's a lot of, of elements in this case. This case has had over 400 witnesses interviewed. Now that doesn't mean that that's what we're going to testify. A judge isn't going to put up with that kind of nonsense, but that's just the number of cases that have been interviewed. Now the defense, I was actually surprised that he went on for almost two hours because it went by pretty quickly. And look, and I'm a defense attorney. Sometimes you can't always make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Sometimes a, a pig ear is just a pig ear. And so Eric Nelson is managing partner of Halberg Criminal Defense. He works with the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association. And he's a former board member of the Minnesota, Minnesota Association of Criminal Defense Attorneys. So if nothing else, we, we definitely know that he knows his stuff when it comes to um, police officers and police procedure. And this is probably not his first time at the rodeo in dealing with some kind of police force case or, or at least something involving officers, especially given his relationship uh, with working with them and, and their officers association. The police don't just work with just anybody. There is insular as any other organization, probably even more so. He starts out where any good defense attorney or one that's you know worth at least half their salary starts out. And that is making sure that everyone knows what the hell reasonable doubt is. 
<laughs> and that's that is extremely important. He starts out saying, now he goes a little to the left with this, but I'll I'll explain it to you anyway. So of course he said reasonable doubt is based is doubt based on reason and common sense. Okay, I'll give him that. He tells them that they will hear a lot about reason and common sense. You will, because again, in a case like this, and you're the defendant, uh, you got to beat that reasonable doubt like it stole something from your mom. So he goes, what is reasonable doubt? And he talks about that. And, and trust and believe he's going to talk about it again. He said, therefore, reason must dictate every aspect of the case. Just Jonda is still with him on that. He says it's when he gets to the part about common sense that he and I have a bit of a departure. He says common sense tells us that there are two sides to every story. Well, actually, common sense usually tells us that there are probably about seven, but okay. Common sense is the application of sound judgment based upon reasoned analysis. Um, no, it's not. No, it's not. Maybe for learned folks such as himself, maybe. But that is not what most of us know common sense to be based on at all. And even when you look at when you look it up in Merriam-Webster, well, first of all, I'm going to give you my definition. Common sense is just that. It's common. It just is. Regular old folks, nothing fancy, just, as they say, good old-fashioned common sense. Some folks don't even have it. So that's what common sense um, is. That's, that's common sense. Now, you look up Merriam-Webster, which I did, common sense is the ability to think and behave in a reasonable way and to make good decisions. Those decisions don't have to be perfect. Those decisions, when they talk about uh, your judgment being sound, well, I don't know, but okay. Next, he says that the the evidence is greater than nine minutes and 59 seconds. Again, if I were in his shoes, I would absolutely be saying the same thing. He talked about the extensive and far-reaching investigation. That's probably not what I would have said initially. I would have, if I'm going to point out to you that the evidence is no greater than nine minutes and 59 seconds, then what I am pointing out to you is the 20 minutes before and well, maybe not much after because we know what happened afterwards, but certainly all the drama that went on before. And he talked a bit about that, but to me, not enough when he starts going into the evidence. We know that this case was uh, investigated um, in every which way but loose, especially given the nature of it and given all the scrutiny on it. And of course the feds got involved and the tons of witnesses, some of them, and I, I believe him when he says some of them didn't even see anything. The execution of a dozen or so search warrants. He even mentioned bait stamp numbers because he said there's like 50,000 uh, stamp documents. Again, we get it. There is going to be a lot of information in this case. And part of it, 
is, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's an unfortunate thing that unlike other cases that deserved this much um, investigation and maybe even more, this one got it because of everything else that had that had that it had going on around it because of the individuals that were involved as in a police officer and a black man, the way that it went down and the literal social upheaval around the world that erupted as a result of it. So let's not act like this is some normal stuff and this is just what they do. So he said, so how do we figure this all out? Let common sense and reason guide you. Because again, he wants to bring you back to this whole common sense thing. And the reason why he wants you to come to common sense is because he wants you to ignore reason. Because if you veer towards the common sense and go, well, maybe it could have just happened instead of reason, as in this person is leaning on this, this other person's neck. And no matter what drugs they may or may not have taken, they, and, and who knows, he may have died from fentanyl that night like Michael Jackson. But the point is, when he died that day, it was when a knee was on his neck for nine minutes and 59 seconds. And as I said, it, and I, he, he just he wants people to get away from the video and focus on the behavior in advance to establish George Floyd as a bad guy. Cause you know, people aren't gonna care about all that, you know, 50,000 pages of this and that. Why should we believe that this guy essentially killed himself with the officer's knee on his neck? He asked for it because he wants to paint George Floyd and he talked about it. This is a, he's, so let's just say, I'm gonna say it in the terms that the defense is gonna want the jury to think about it. This was a junkie. Life long time drug user, 10, 15 years or more, who showed up under the influence to a convenience store. He passed illegal currency and was uncooperative about resolving the issue. He, he was described on the phone by the clerk as drunk, six foot six, and out of control. His friend said that once George Floyd got back in the car, he took what was thought to be two Percocet and fell asleep. But they may have, but they were a mix. It was, um, uh, he, they were speedballs, actually. The friends couldn't wake him up. Now, the police didn't respond to this call for about 30 minutes after uh, George Floyd and his companions left the store and they weren't parked in front of it. As we know, uh, they were parked um, like around from it, not very far. Now, the officers, the first two officers on the scene, now this is still in the opening arguments of the defense because again, he got deeper into it because we got to start establishing this guy is a bad guy. He failed to show the officers his hand two times. Now, forget the fact that less than two minutes before, you just told us that he was asleep and his own friends couldn't wake him up. But okay. The officers say George Floyd put drugs in his mouth in an effort to conceal it. 
The defense said that they have the video to show that um, evidence of further concealment of controlled substances. So I guess we'll see that. And then he talked about the fact that the pills um, were actually a mixture of an opiate and a stimulant, which was meth and a fentanyl. So that was the speedball. Uh, we know that Chauvin was actually not the first person on the scene. Officers King and Lane were on the scene first. Officer Tao, who was uh, charged uh, as well. Um, and uh, I think, and the other one that was charged was Lane. And, uh, but Tao and Lane, Tao and Chauvin were partners and they arrived uh, a little bit later. It's funny that he mentioned that the defendant was 5'9 and 140 pounds and made sure once again to point out uh, George Floyd's more accurate height and weight, which was uh, 6'3 and 220. Because of course he wants to establish that um, the defendant couldn't control him. So you got to keep mentioning this because it's got to make sense that you need all of these people to take down King Kong because next to George Floyd, the defendant is like the little white lady in the dress that he held in his hand until he was shot down by the helicopters or, or the, the fighter planes. Now, never mind, as I told my daughter the other day, that I cried when King Kong died because he actually was aggravated by all the things that were being done to him. And like Harambe actually thought he was saving the white lady in the, in the white dress, but never mind my whole King Kong issue. The point is we've got to show him as the bad one the big bad boogeyman and he's six foot three and 220 pounds and you should be scared to death of him so they considered applying the maximal restraint technique and do you know what that maximal restraint technique was that they considered doing the hog tie and as horrible and demeaning as the hog tie sounds I think in retrospect, I probably would have preferred if they did the hog tie versus what they ultimately ended up doing, which as we know, was each of uh, was two men on his back. And of course, uh, the defendant with his knee on his neck. He said that we are going to also deal with the fact that the crowd was developing, watching and recording initially docile. They began to get angry and say things and seeing that from the police perspective, what they were dealing with, with an angry growing crowd and what they perceived to be a threat. Now from the crowd though, from the crowd, that they are being called names, being screamed at, causing officers to divert attention from Mr. Floyd to the threat going in front of them. But you have him on the ground and your knee on his neck. But okay. He also says that questions, that, so there's gonna be questions that are gonna be, that are going to come up and that he is going to address questions emerging about the reasonableness of the use of force and that 
the Bureau of Criminal Apprehensions, who knew that existed, right? Investigated the MPO and their use of force policies. We're gonna talk about the authorized use of force, force, proportionality of force, excited delirium, defensive tactics, including prone handcuffing and neck restraints, maximal restraint technique and the swarm technique. We're also gonna talk about rapidly evolving situations in the MPD decision-making, crowd control, medical intervention, de-escalation, procedural justice, crisis intervention, and the human factors of force. What happens to police officers or any person when they are in a high stress use of force situation? Now, I'm really excited to hear about this excited delirium. Who are, who is, who are they gonna argue had it? Um, is the argument going to be that George Floyd had it? Yeah, Lassie, that's right. Then I should be afraid of having, of, because I sat next to you for months. <laughs> Lassie, like you said, yes, you were 6'3", 220. I did not know that. I could have guessed you were 6'3", but you carried a 220 well. So we start with the witnesses right away because I told you, the judge, he is not messing around. We're going to keep this, we're going to keep it moving. So the first witness was the dispatcher on the case. Now, I don't think the prosecutor really kept her up there very long. The, the, um, I think that the on under cross, the cross went on for a little while. And I think he felt like he needed to address and really, really delve into why there were so many officers on the scene and to establish not only why they were there, but what role she played in sending them there. Because again, the fact that there were so many officers on the scene certainly feeds into the concern that the, the showing of force even before force was used, was rather excessive. And, um, you know, she talked about the initial 911 call. And yeah, they played the initial 911 call. And they just kind of go back and forth and talk about um, when it's appropriate to send a backup team, what she needs to hear from the officers at the scene if she hears anything back from them, as well as fire and rescue, what is it that she needs to hear, whether it's something that she hears during the initial call, just based on what appears to be unfolding, or if it is that once the officers get there during the course of their interaction, it is necessary that someone um, be called. She did mention that she stayed on the phone for a good period of time, but uh, not entirely, but she did watch. They have, she has several, um, several monitors there. So she's able to see what's going on. I don't know 
if she was able to hear it, but she was able to see. And she said she paid, she kind of half paid attention to it. So that was really most of her testimony. The second witness, I agree with several of the pundits. She, she just shouldn't have been there. She had an attitude problem. She didn't want to be there. She made it known she didn't want to be there. She wore an Arizona Jeans Company shirt, and apparently she's from Arizona. She doesn't know where in Arizona. She just says all over Arizona. And uh, she apparently the video that because she was, you know, there, apparently the video she had wasn't even that great. Um, I, I just agree with some of the other, uh, some of my other colleagues. I just was, I just wouldn't have called her. There was nothing that she offered that was really pertinent. And I get that she didn't want to be there and she just happened to be in the store and whatever, but clean up, come with a better attitude. You know that this is uh, an important trial. Like nobody cares that you and your boyfriend fought over the last Newports that morning. I mean, it, it, come on. So yeah, waste of time. So now we get to who definitely was the highlight witness among the prosecution's witnesses. And quite frankly, among their civilian witnesses, these two are probably going to be, I, I, I just can't imagine anybody other than the fire and rescue person. And I know her testimony is coming up, but I won't be talking about it tonight. Um, I can't imagine other than Donald Williams, D. Frazier, D. Frazier's little cousin, who that was just more of an emotional thing, really. And the woman who was the volunteer firefighter, they are probably going to be the best of the best in terms of civilian witnesses. And then you just add to it the fact that um, you could tell even on the scene, it's at least with the firefighter woman, when she was going back and forth with the officer that she expresses herself very well, which is important when you're on the stand, um, you know, and, and talking in front of a jury. So Donald Williams is the individual whose voice you heard uh, it, literally the entire time, no matter what, uh, no matter whose tape you're watching, unless it's one of the angles from people across the street, but anything from that main angle that we all saw, which is uh, D. Frazier's tape, which is even the one that the prosecutors use, he is the person whose voice you hear throughout. And he also made a 911 call himself. He is the person that you hear constantly telling them, you know, basically repeating the things that George Floyd is saying, saying he can't breathe um, and, and all of those things. And of course, getting increasingly frustrated when he was just telling the police that they were being bums and that their behavior was shitty. And he, you know, just got to the point where he was expressing himself about the fact that he just felt like he was witnessing a murder. And even when he called 911 himself wanting to speak to a supervisor, that is exactly what he said on his 911 call that I just stood here and watched a murder. Um, so this is definitely a person that even though you didn't know his face or his name, uh, if you saw any of, if you saw the tape and it had volume, then you definitely heard this guy. 
And um, he also, because of his training um, formerly in wrestling in high school and college and, and now mixed martial arts, he is the person who was very knowledgeable about the whole techniques that they were using, even on the scene saying, hey, you shouldn't be holding him like that. You shouldn't be uh, have your knee like that. And even though he was not on the stand in his it uh in the capacity of being an expert witness he ended up being an excellent witness for the prosecution and i quite frankly am surprised that the defense didn't make more objections because he came off like he was put up there as an expert witness uh in relation to him talking about the types of holds and um, which types of holds are likely to lead to unconsciousness or death. And all of that testimony got in. And in fact, instead of, you know, kind of letting sleeping dogs lie with that so that maybe he can raise it on objection that someone was treated as if they were an expert witness, despite the fact that, that is not what they were there for, when it was time for the defense to do cross-examination, he started speaking to him further about his expertise in um, mixed martial arts and the types of holds. So as far as I'm concerned, if you were going to raise any objections to the testimony that he gave, then you just kind of waived your own objection by continuing to question him about that. And not only did the defense ask him questions about it, but they didn't ask him questions in a way to rebut him by saying, didn't you say that this kind of hold was XYZ, but turns out it's ZYX. So clearly you don't know what you're talking about. No, that's not what he did. He was just asking him more questions about it. And the guy would answer the question and he would just go to another question. It was, you know, um, so that, so in addition to the fact that he testified very confidently about what he saw and it was yet another opportunity for the prosecution to effectively use the tape because as horrible as it is, and it is horrible, because you are watching someone die, whether you believe they were murdered or they just died on their own, it doesn't matter. That part doesn't matter. What matters is you're watching it. And for the jury, the judge, anybody in that courtroom, the television audience, whomever, you are watching this over and over. Now, from the prosecution standpoint, however distasteful that may be, the more the jury sees it, the more you drive home the horror of it, which means that by the time the defense gets up there and starts trying to undercut the medical evidence and somehow try to justify the fact that Chauvin or the defendant wouldn't move even after George Floyd was no longer moving, even after the par paramedics arrived, took his pulse, said he wasn't breathing, and, and obviously he wasn't moving. And even to the point where you had to be physically pulled off of this man, he wasn't moving. 
And all of this being on on a video that you can justify be through the testimony of your witnesses and asking them about it, you can justify showing it over and over to drive home the horror of that. No matter what the defense does, says, no matter how they try to spin it, there is only so many times that as he says himself, a reasonable person with common sense can watch something like that and not feel that they have to hold someone responsible for the behavior that they just saw that resulted in the horror that it became. So as gratuitous as it may be, as distasteful that I'm sure there will be some who will argue that it is by the time we get to the 10th or 12th time that the jury is forced to watch all or a portion of this tape. Um, it's the right thing to do, at least from the prosecution standpoint. And it is gross, but it's what is probably going to be one of the single most important things that this entire case turns on because you can argue everything until you're blue in the face and good for uh, the defendant finding someone who is tops in their field and competent at doing what they do, but they have got a dog of a case that they have to fight. I mean, this is like representing Susan Smith after she's already admitted to driving the kids into the lake. I mean, it's 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 a, it's a tough one. So, at any rate, he goes on to testify, um, and we're still talking about Donald Williams. Uh, he talks about the fact that. Um, well, we'll get to, so we know what he testified on direct. So on cross, so let's talk about his cross because that's where things really got interesting. He didn't say anything that we didn't expect him to say on direct. So on cross, it started out really weird because, um, the defense attorney started, just kept asking him all about his wrestling and mixed martial arts and all of that. And and then he started, it was almost, well, it wasn't almost, it was clear that he was trying to paint Donald Williams as someone who was threatening the police and then through his actions may have even hyped up the crowd. And obviously Donald Williams, uh, whether it was via his preparation or just him coming in ready, he knew that. And he was ready to rebut that and said that he was afraid for his own safety. So he knew that no matter how much he wanted to, that he couldn't intervene, that there were times when he stepped off the curb. And when he did, he spoke to Officer Tal. He said at one point, Officer Tal even reached towards him and he put his hands up and he stepped back. Um, he was also there when the woman who was the firefighter came up. So he heard her ask. Uh, that George Floyd's poor pulse be taken. 
he was insistent that nobody was threatening the officers physically. He even tried to help other people help hold other people back because of the nature of what was going on. Other people obviously could have been in danger and gotten in trouble. He even he said that he even told one guy to go back into the store. It's not even worth it. He does admit to raising his voice and and using inappropriate language. Um, but he said ultimately he was still afraid for himself than others. And one of the main reasons he was raising his voice and using the type of language that he was using and getting increasingly frustrated and upset was because the officers were not responding to them. They weren't responding to George Floyd. So he figures I'm going to say the things George Floyd is saying about the fact that he can't breathe and nobody's listening to any of them and that this and so despite the fact that defense attorney the defense attorney kept trying to say so you were mad and you were upset and he was just like you know he was just really making clear that he was very frustrated as anybody would be not being listened to under those circumstances and given what he was looking at especially seeing George Floyd being unresponsive he was able to get the badge number um, off of the defendant because, you know, he was right there. He was still when he was on George Floyd. So he was able to call the police and wanted to speak to the supervisor. And he said he just felt like it was the right thing to do uh, to make that call. So that is really uh, one of the big things that he was concerned about. He said that he felt Tao was still trying to intimidate him by putting putting stuff in front of his face, and it it just got really crazy. And he was he was upset about that. He also talked about um, the defense. Also went on and on with him about. You called them a bum 13 times. He was like, okay, if I did, I'd get, I did. You called him a tough guy, a real man, bogus. You called him a effing bum. You called him a effing uh, PS bitch, all of this stuff. Um, he even said that I dare you to touch me like that. I will slap the stuff out of you. Um, and, and it was just one of those things where he wanted to paint Donald Williams as angry and, you know, that, that he was a dangerous individual given his training. Not that the police would have even known about that. Um, and that they had almost like they had a reason to be afraid of him. Um, and that's, and again, they mentioned again, talking about the choke holds and the submission holds. Um, but again, he was just a really good witness and kind of came off a little like an unofficial expert, which it, if I was the defense attorney, I would have been trying to kind of rebut that, but hell, he was asking the same questions. The next witness that came up and, and she and her cousin are the last ones we're going to talk about. Um, one of, even though brief, highly effective, and that is Dee Frazier. She is 18 now, but she was 17 at the time. This is the young lady who she and her little cousin, who was nine, 
were going to that store because that was just their neighborhood neighborhood store fairly oblivious to uh, what was going on. I mean, they had to be because they just walked right up to the store. Once she got to the store and let her cousin, she allowed the little one to go in, she uh, kind of zeroed in a little bit more on what was going on. And so she took out her phone. So she is the one who recorded the video that initially went to Facebook. And that's the one that we all saw that basically really up close and personal. It is even the video that the prosecution is using, the nine minutes and 59 seconds, because she began recording when she got there. And she was just, and again, brief, but effective, because the reality of it is that she was there. She didn't say much. And she said what little bit she did say it didn't really go anywhere. She described herself as someone having a social anxiety disorder. So she's not someone who would really speak up. She was upset, but it's just not her nature to jump into things, which may be why she thought she was helping in her own way by recording the events. Her niece, who, and I'm going to sort of combine their testimony, or her little cousin actually came out of the store and since she was already recording, her little cousin also saw some as well. Very effective, very emotional. The little girl at first didn't recognize the defendant, but, um, and she was honest when they said, do you see the person involved in the courtroom? She said, no. When he took off his mask, she was like, that's him right there. And, you know, they may talk crap uh, later on. I'm sure there'll be somebody that said, of course, she was going to identify him because he took his mask off. Well, first of all, when you see something like that, what's the odds of it? Odds you're going to forget. Second, yes, he did take his mask off. Not that his face hasn't been everywhere. And third, is there any question that it was his? So why are we going to trip about whatever manner a little girl makes her ID? Come on. So that part happens. And um, so let's see. So it, meanwhile, the defense, they really didn't have, they didn't have any questions for the nine-year-old. I was like, you better not. And then the 18-year-old, and neither of their faces were shown because they were minors, um, or the 18-year-old was a minor at the time of the event. The 18-year-old, um, he asked her about the fact that she put up the video and it went viral. And she's like, yeah. He said, did you expect that? She said, no. And he said, well, it changed your life, didn't it? Now, that question was objected to, so it didn't go anywhere. I think everybody understood. It was rude. It was nasty. It was almost geared towards saying, oh, you want to become famous off of this. But it actually ended up uh, working out perfectly for the prosecution who got up to redirect and following up on that, it was almost like the defense tossed him an unexpected alley-oop that he was able to just finish off because he did go back and say, well, your life did change and um, tell me about that. And after she had talked about just her feelings and watching what she saw, having a black father, brother, uncles, cousins, friends, and, and just the same feelings that so many of us could identify with seeing what happened. She also, um, as it relates to the piece about her life changing, and this was actually the note her testimony ended on, it's very effective. 
said that, well, one of the things and reasons it has changed is because there's a lot of nights that she can't sleep because she sees this in her head and she also finds herself apologizing to George Floyd because she feels like she didn't do enough to save him, like that she should have jumped in or she should have done something to save him, which is incredibly sad, not just effective from, you know, if you're a trial buff like me, but incredibly sad because there is nobody who should have had to feel this way in this situation because it reinforces the fact that something like this should have never happened. This was not a gun accidentally going off. So it's like, you know, that horrible feeling that parents uh, or others who have a gun in their home and the kids get a hold of it. Oh, I should have never had the gun in my house and that whole thing. No, this isn't that. This is a situation where individuals watched live and in living color something unfolding that should have not unfolded in the manner that it did. And when it did, it resulted in someone's death. At least that's what the prosecution is going to say. And that is why the way that her testimony ended followed up by just the sweetness of the nine-year-old having to witness something that is so horrible that her older cousin is still kept up at night were two excellent notes. Again, there's nothing cute about this for the prosecution to end their particular testimony on. And let me be clear, especially when I talk about excellent notes, I am talking about from the standpoint of trial strategy and what is going to be effective in the mind of a juror. I am talking about the theater of the courtroom, not necessarily things that are going to be pretty and things that are going to make you feel good. So there'll be a lot of things that I am going to say as it relates to the theater of the courtroom and the effectiveness of the attorneys in selling their case, the effectiveness of the, um, of the expert witnesses in providing that extra piece of razzle-dazzle, that thing that is going to connect with the jury that thing that is going to override for some of them, whether it is the prosecution or the defense that is going to be that thing that it turns on. For the prosecution, they're hoping it's the video. For the defense, uh, I think it's right now, it's probably a horse race between that whole notion of the evolving crowd and what that does to the officers and that and the fear and all of that versus the medical evidence. But I, I would, um, I would, if I were them or if I were advising them, I would caution against 
allowing all of this to turn on the medical evidence. They've got to add some humanity to it. And if there's one thing, and I know I forgot to mention this earlier, if there's one area in particular, there were several, but I did, just didn't want to be overly critical, but in this, because I want to get a better feel for watching both the prosecution and defense a little more. I'm sure by the time we get to my part four on this, I'll have quite a bit uh, to say in terms of my fellow barristers, but I didn't want to come out of the shoot uh, being overly critical. But this one point um, I have to point out, and that is that I really expected more as it relates to the prosecution humanizing or attempting to humanize the defendant in his opening. I know that it is very, very tricky, especially in a case where one of the charges does not rely on specific intent. So it can be very tricky to um, acknowledge any type of remorse or acknowledge some potential mistakes or concerns about one's behavior when one or more, and in this case, two of your charges don't require specific intent. Instead, all they require is that you act in a manner that is so reckless or just so beyond what a normal person would do that it, you know that you per se showed a an indifference for human life and um or as we call it a depraved indifference for human life so i get that it's tricky to make certain acknowledgments when your person can be found guilty pretty much for just being there and doing what some people would think isn't so bad, but under the circumstances, it ended up being really, really bad. Now, in this case, there's no way around the fact that most people are going to think what he did was really, really bad. But again, just illustrating a point. I just um, felt very uneasy about him doing an entire opening and at no point expressing um, or from on the behalf of his client some level of remorse as it related to uh, George Floyd as opposed to um, how this has impacted him. And considering the fact that it's probably not going to be the best thing in the world, like with most defendants, to put him on the stand, you are the person who have, has to humanize him because without him taking the stand, he can't do it for himself. And if he gets on that stand, that prosecution is going to eat him for lunch. That's why you're bringing in so many experts to try to talk about what he may have possibly been thinking. That is why you're trying to uh, play up this notion that the crowd 
was so problematic that they got inside his head because between the whole crowd argument and these other expert witnesses about, you know, the things that the police officer may have been going through, which I um, mentioned earlier, that you're hoping to establish what he may have been thinking and what was going on um, and, and what he may have been feeling and why he reacted the way that he did or acted the way he did. We get it. You're using all of those things to establish those points without him. Because if you had any intention of him testifying, he could explain those things himself. Now, people may not buy it, but it, but he would say it. This is the way I felt and this is why. So it's going to definitely, um, I think, I, I am definitely looking forward, and, and I hope I didn't miss it, but again, I'm going to watch it later anyway, to um, the young lady, the young firefighter. She's definitely somebody I'm looking forward to hearing. And, and of course, I think the, the coroners, I mean, not the coroners, the uh, medical pathologists are going to be must-see TV for both the defense and the prosecution because uh, the way that they characterize this case in terms of how they characterized his death is, is more than just a little bit bizarre. So that is where we are so far with the George Floyd case. And I just really appreciate that all of you are hanging in there on our LBD and we just had an LBD special as well. So just so much going on here um, uh, at the Let's Be Honest headquarters. <laughs> and I am just excited to have you all joining in with me. Again, please follow on all um, on all platforms. And um, if you are an iTunes listener, Apple iTunes, please listen over there, leave five stars and a review. You can certainly follow me and reach out to me via social media, Twitter and Instagram at Let's Be Honest JJ. That's L-E-T-S-B-E-H-O-N-E-S-T-J-J for Just Jonda. And you can certainly join us on the FNDD, which is the Fashion and Drama Diaries on Facebook, where we talk about everything, every day, all of the gossip, the news, the drama, all of that. If I can't get on the air, I'm definitely over there because I can do it anytime. As it relates to this case, when I can, I will be tweeting in real time. So you definitely want to follow me on Twitter. If you have any questions about anything that you want me to bring up on the show, make sure that you go ahead and you tweet it or you can DM me. I do always check. I am setting up an email so that you all can um, reach me there and tell me what's going on in your end of the world, any cases you want me to look into and talk about on our LBD. Because if you're thinking about it and want to talk about it, chances are I'm thinking about it and want to talk about it with you. So let's be honest together. And while we're at it, let's get some more LBD episodes so that we can break all this stuff down. Good night.